In 1961, during the height of the Cold War, something happened that brought much of the world together in celebration. For the first time in human history, one of us was able to leave the Earth behind and travel into space. This is the story of that moment, and not surprisingly, it's an even stranger, sadder, and more inspiring story than you might expect. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, Professor Nathan Radke. This is a podcast about conspiracy theories. Yes, it is. But it can't just only be about conspiracy theories. The thing is, when, and we've learned this having studied conspiracy theories now for over a decade. Yep. You can't just look at conspiracy theories, not only because you'll eventually go mad as we have, but because... You need to look at all of the things around conspiracy theories. Yeah, the social context, the yep. political scene, the historical background. Certainly, I have found that as a question of method, looking at precisely those things that contribute to conspiracies and the evolution of them has helped me understand which ones are more realistic, which ones I should believe and take seriously, and which ones I can understand why they emerged, but are probably not true. It's yeah. that context that helps me understand it. And, it, and it's weird. I feel like researching conspiracy theories has helped me learn all sorts of things about psychology and sociology and history yep. and politics. Yep. And learning about those things have helped me understand conspiracy theories. It's a virtuous circle. It is a virtue, which are unusual. Normally you get the vicious circles. Yeah. Well, maybe it's a vicious circle. It's I don't a, know. Yeah. Or spinning down or up. I don't know. Yeah. We're spiraling. That's the important thing. Yeah. <laughs> One of the themes that shows up and it's shown up in all sorts of places. It's shown up in like uh, the episode on Marilyn Monroe. It's showed up in episodes on things like Area 51. Is this tension between individuals and the situations they're trapped in. Right. And so what we're talking about today is we're talking about one of the ultimate examples of that. Because we're talking about a guy. We're talking about a single person. But this is a famous guy. Yeah, really famous guy. In fact, at one moment in time, probably the most famous person in the world. Okay. It is Yuri Gagarin, the first person into space. And it's interesting because this is a Soviet story, and there's a lot of tension there because the Soviet Union, of course, triumphed collectivism. It wasn't about the individual. It was about what the collective could achieve. But they didn't send a collective out into space. They sent a guy out into space. Right. And so I, I feel like it was a little bit awkward because on the one hand, you've got this individual, but you have to somehow balance that out and say, okay, but he's like a representative of everything that is Soviet. Exactly. He is the individual that represents the triumph of Soviet socialism. Yeah. Of course, over in the American system, they have the opposite thing where you triumph the individual and deny that the collective had anything to do with it. History is complicated. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about Yuri Gagarin going into space. Okay. You asked before we started recording, is this, is this an optimistic story? Is this, is this a story that uplifting story? Well, because last episode was about global thermonuclear annihilation. True. And I felt like we, even for us, it got a little dark. 
And I wanted something slightly more uplifting, although I know that I've come to the wrong place, perhaps. This one is still about thermonuclear annihilation because it's about the space race. (laughs) Right. And the space race, of course, was almost entirely a proxy. Because the Americans and the Soviets couldn't fight each other directly because of mutually assured destruction. You can tell I've said this bit a lot because I say it so quickly. Yeah, exactly. They had to have other symbolic ways of fighting. And the space race was, of course, the most public, the most obvious stand-in for having a nuclear exchange. Because it's it's rockets. Because it's still rockets. Exactly. if you can put a person on that rocket, then you can put other things on that rocket. Hint, hint. You know, a bomb. Yeah, exactly. So let's start very briefly by talking about the space race. We had an episode recently where we talked about Nazi Germany and Hitler's so-called Wunderwaffen. Yes. Nice pronunciation. Look at you. Practicing. And as you recall, most of those Wunderwaffens were not so wonderful. (laughs) No, they were not wonderful. There was the Messerschmitt... Wunderbar, actually. They weren't Wunderbar, right. The Messerschmitt 163 rocket plane, which mostly dissolved its own pilots. Okay, the, to, 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 to be fair, all of this has already left my brain. It's true. And it's, it's, coming, it's, it's coming flying, it's roaring back in. It's not really. It's just, these are just numbers now. But I know that they sucked. And they were dead ends. Right. They were technological dead ends. Right. And the reason the, we the did... The tank that was too big yeah. to go over bridges yeah. or move anywhere. Yeah, the tank that was the size of a small village. It was all ridiculous. And the reason we did that episode was to point out that these myths that originated about some kind of like super secret weapons that the Nazis had managed to put together, for the most part, it was based on nonsense and propaganda. Right. But... There was one legit new form of weapon that came out of Nazi Germany, produced during World War II, that actually was a game-changing weapon and would eventually change the nature of, of all warfare. Was it the rocket? Exactly. It was the V-2, the Vengeance Weapon 2 rocket, which was a rocket that you could fire from continental Europe at targets in London. Mm-hmm. It was the first ICBM, basically. Mm-hmm. And they were working on rockets that were going to be launched from Germany into New York. Wow. Because again, Hitler obsessed with seeing New York burn. Mm -hmm. Now this, unlike all the other weapons, this was one that could genuinely change the way war was fought. Right. It was going to shake up the balance of power globally. And so after VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, there was a race uh, between the Americans and the Soviets to grab as much of the German tech and German scientists as possible. Under Project Paperclip. Exactly. Because the Cold War was already taking shape in those final days of World War II. The Americans and Soviets are on the same side. As it becomes clear that the war is coming to a close, it also sort of becomes clear a new war is starting to take shape. Yep. Well, didn't Churchill suggest that the tanks keep rolling to Moscow after the victory over Germany? Yeah. So already at the end of the war, there was a sense that this is our enemy, even though Stalin is sitting at the table talking with us. He is somebody we need. maybe want to get rid of. Let's keep this war going. That's what Churchill wanted. The Americans did well in the, in the brain grab of Nazi scientists. They got, of course, uh, Werner von Braun. He's the big rocket engineer, and he was essential with the Apollo program, wasn't he? Yeah, I, I don't think the Americans get to the moon without him. Uh, Herberta Strughold, who was that monster who had been doing experimentation on human beings to see what they could survive, and in doing so, killing many, many human beings. Mm-hmm. And all of that was happening in Paperclip. And the Americans also grabbed every completed V2 or V2 component they could find. And eventually over 100 finished V2s get sent to America. Wow. It's a good start for your rocket program. Sure. 
Now, the Soviets also sent operatives into Berlin specifically to find the data and the schematics on the V-2, but they weren't as successful as the Americans. Now, the, the V-2s, they killed about 2,500 people, which isn't very much by World War II standards. I was going to say, that's actually a lot less than I would have guessed. Yeah. Given also just what a rocket is. I mean, it's just this bomb that you go flying into cities. You'd think that, okay, I would have expected a much higher death toll. Yeah. In part, it was because they didn't produce that many of them, because the rocket was brand new, so the warheads weren't that large, because you couldn't aim them that accurately yet. Right. And I'm sure getting it to a city does require real precision accuracy. I yeah. mean, if you're a little bit off, then you are in a farmer's field. Yeah, or the ocean or wherever. Now, they produced, the Germans produced slightly fewer than 5,800 V2s. So basically, for every V2 produced, it killed about a half a person. Okay. However, the conditions under which they were working were unbelievably hazardous. So for each V2 produced, again, 5,800, there were about four prisoners who died in the construction of those wow. rockets. okay. They were far more dangerous to the people making them, who, of course, under Nazi Germany would have been forced labor from the camps. Right. But one of those former prisoners survived and came forward to tell a Soviet operative named Major Boris Chertok, Chertok, Major Boris Chertok, where the SS had hidden some V-2 equipment, and so the Soviets were able to put together about 20 V-2s with the parts they found, and this moment is basically the beginning of the space race. Okay, because both the Americans and the Soviets now have a kind of a head start in the rocketry game. They're both able to, I guess, reverse engineer these things, and off we go. Yeah, and it's going to take two aspects. One is they're going to be figuring out how to send rockets into their opponent's cities and more publicly, how to send people up into space. Okay. That's all big picture stuff. Okay. Now let's get really tiny. All right. In fact, let's get super tiny, like five foot two tiny. That, that sounds like Yuri Gagarin tiny. That is Yuri Gagarin tiny. So Yuri Gagarin is born, small guy, born in a small village in Smolensk in 1934, which already... That's too bad. Oh? Why is it too bad to be born in, like, Western Russia in 1934? What does that mean you're going to experience? Well, you're going to experience the Nazis coming. Yep. Where Gagarin is born is about to be the worst place on Earth, maybe in history. Hmm. And so when he's seven years old, the Germans invade Russia in Operation Barbarossa. So he would have been provided absolutely no shortage of horrors and dangers. His younger brother, an SS officer, attempted to hang him. But wow. because Gagarin's brother was so light, he was able to just hang there being strangled for a while, and they were able to go out and cut him down. Gagarin, as a little kid, was like a tiny little partisan and put broken glass and nails and things out in the road to try to interfere with the German vehicles. It's not much of a childhood, let's no. face it. And actually, another point which maybe detract from your narrative, but is also happening at this time as Stalin's terror is ramping up. So not only do you have the horror of the Nazis about to invade at the very moment when he's born, well, a year later, is when you start getting Stalin's purges, which feed these labors, they're not exactly death camps, but the, the gulag, this political prison where starvation, freezing, torture, is rampant, and it blankets the Soviet Union with fear. Yeah. And I'm sure his parents 
oh, were, yeah. like everybody else in most of Soviet Union, was just afraid. So here's a seven-year-old kid trapped between two madnesses. Yeah. And what's weird is that when you read interviews with people who knew him as a child, aside from like the trying to sabotage German vehicles and stuff, the thing that people remember most about Gagarin and the thing that re- people remember most about his short adult life, big smile. Yeah. He seemed like a genuinely open, friendly, warm character. Hmm. So you've got this tiny little guy, you've got these massive forces. That's going to be a constant theme throughout this episode. So he survives World War II. And like a lot of Russians, wants to do something patriotic for his country after the Great, the great War, as they called it, the Great Patriotic War, had no interest in any kind of ground war. He had seen enough ground war as a seven-year-old. Sure. So where do you go? The sky. Okay. And he joins the Soviet Air Force and flies the MiG-15. Okay. I know this. See, you remember the MiG-15. I do. Now, in 1959, a mysterious team of officers and doctors starts showing up at Soviet Air Force bases. And they're interviewing pilots without going into any detail about what the project they were recruiting for was actually about. You know, nobody was surprised by that. It's the Soviet Union. Right. Like occasionally, (laughs) people are going to show up and they're going to have questions and you're going to have to be really careful about your answers. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's just the situation they're in. However, it's important to note, Stalin at this point is dead. He is dead. Yay! The leader of the Soviet Union is now... Khrushchev. Yeah. Now, what do you, what's your take on Khrushchev? If you're going to put him on a bumper sticker, for people who know nothing about the Soviet Union or Khrushchev, what's, what's your take on Khrushchev? Not very good at bumper stickers. Uh, no, you are. You are infamously... My bumper stickers are terribly yeah. long. Lee um, requires a very wide car. But he was a peasant, Khrushchev, and he was very flamboyant. The image a lot of people have of Khrushchev is when he was at the United Nations and he wanted to make a point and he took off his shoe and he started banging the lectern with it. And he was this, he was kind of, I mean, I don't want to say he was a fool. He was a smart guy, Mm -hmm. but he came across as a bit of a... Buffoon? Buffoon. Yeah. But... He survived Stalin. Well, that's so it. There's no, that's, like, that's why you can't say he was a fool. No, like, he was very calculated. He was very calculating. He was very tactful. And maybe this buffoonery was a part of the, the image that he was trying to project. The other thing about Khrushchev is that he seemed to be kind of course correcting for right. the horrors of Stalinism. Well, indeed, he had... The de-Stalinization? Was that the name of it? I mean, that's one of the names there, that's been... So there was a famous letter that Khrushchev writes for, it was at first intended just for the upper elites within the government. And it pointed out that Stalin had gone too far. I mean, that's putting it really, really mildly, but it did signal, as Nathan, you're saying, this course correction. Yeah. And the gulag that I mentioned earlier doesn't disappear under Khrushchev, but its use starts to... It's not everybody just gets arbitrarily sent to the gulag if you tell the joke in the wrong place or if you happen to, I don't know, you know, buy the wrong product or say the wrong thing or... Yeah, if we don't go as far as saying Khrushchev put his foot on the brake, he did take his foot off the gas. Certainly. We'll we'll say that much. Yeah. And he did admit and denounce the crimes committed under Stalin. And that was a big shock internally. This signaled sort of a new dawn. Yeah. And 
Khrushchev wanted some kind of big symbolic thing to show that, to show that this was a new Soviet Union, okay. that they were emerging in the second half of the 20th century. They were leaving behind the barbarism. They were leaving behind the, the, the backwardsness. And they were becoming the player on the world stage. Right. So he's going to need some kind of big program. And that was the program these doctors and scientists were showing up at Air Force bases asking a lot of questions. Okay. They put people through a bunch of tests, including Gagarin, uh, people like German Titov, uh, Lyonov, Komarov, all of these famous who would eventually become cosmonauts. And the tests were wild and they were kind of, they were very Soviet. For one test, you needed to complete complex math problems. Already were nervous. <laughs> but while doing it, you had to wear a set of earphones through which a voice would be continuously reading off the incorrect answers. Okay. So you're trying to do math while someone is in your ear giving you the wrong answers. Okay. Amazing. Some of the pilots thought they were being screened to fly a new test jet, a MiG or something, or maybe a helicopter. But finally, these successful candidates, including Gagarin and Titov and Komarov and Leonov, were told, nope, you're being recruited to take a long-distance flight around the Earth in space to become cosmonauts in the Vostok space capsule program led by this guy, Sergei Korolev, who was a rocket engineer who had survived Stalin's purges, although he had been sent to the Gulag at the beginning of the war, and things had gotten quite bad for him. Okay, so this is 1959. Yep. And Yuri Gagarin now, at some point along this training exercise, realizes he's being recruited for a Soviet space program. Yeah, and, and think about it. You've taken a guy from the Gulag, Sergei Korolev. He had been placed in the Gulag for whatever nonsense reason. He had almost died. He had lost his teeth. He had been beaten very badly. And now this guy had been taken from the Gulag and was going to send the Soviet Union into space. And one more thing about Korolev. An interesting character. In, in all the research I've done, we've said that the space race was just a proxy for, yeah. the, for nuclear war. Yeah. That putting rockets into space, I mean, that was just sort of cover. You were running cover. You were actually designing missiles to destroy cities. Right. And you were pretending, no, no, we're doing exploration. Right. Well, it was, it was a proxy on two fronts. I think the immediate one is what you're saying. It's a cover for nuclear war, essentially, yeah. driven by rockets. And then on the other, more generally, as a public relations campaign is, look, our society is better than yours because we can do better things. Yeah, like This like is what the Olympics. the Olympics have. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. We've been working for a know. long time. <laughs> However... Korolev, the chief designer, the guy from the Gulag, maybe because of his time in the Gulag, I think to a degree he kind of subverted that. I think he was using the promise of building better missiles as an excuse to work on better rockets. I think he was actually interested in spaceflight. Right. And he lobbied early on and publicly for experimentation in satellite technology. I think Korolev wanted to go to space. And that makes a lot of sense, too. I would be into that. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because so much of our time is spent looking at how the structures and systems kind of crush people. Yeah. But there are still examples of people being within those systems, even within the Soviet system, and being able to kind of nudge this and manipulate that and to subvert it. And I think Korolev, that's what he is doing. Do what you can with what you have while you have it. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of like, yeah, okay, what? I'm I'm here in the Soviet Union. Okay, I just came out of the gulag. Things are sucky. 
And yet I have this opportunity to work on something I'm passionate about. Yeah. Let's make the best of it. Yeah. Let's put humans in space. So the pilots, including Gagarin, were sent to a secret base near Moscow called, here we go. I can't help you with this one. I'm sorry. Zvavzizhnigdi. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to our, <laughs> I'm sorry to Snishana, our Russian translator. Zvavzizhnigorod. Oh, God, I give up. Star City. Okay, that's the, that's the translation yeah. of it. Where is it, maybe? Uh, just outside of Moscow. Okay. And the buildings that the pilots were being tested and housed in, just even the buildings were part of the training. The buildings were part of the test because they were designed to be claustrophobic, unsettling, and tiring. Well, that's most of Soviet architecture, if it's I'm true. going to be yeah, honest with you. Yeah, but even by <laughs> Soviet architectural standards, rather than accidentally doing that, right. they were deliberately doing that, which makes you almost think they'd be nicer than a normal Soviet building. But... The buildings themselves, that's just the beginning of it. That's nothing compared to some of the testing ordeals the pilots were put through. And it wasn't just the pilots, because while the potential cosmonauts were put through all sorts of unpleasant ordeals and tests, which we'll talk about, the scientists were still hesitant to damage the future cosmonauts because you had put so much training and investment into them. Right, yeah. So what are you going to do then? You're going to need to test these things. You don't want to test the real cosmonauts. What do you do? What do you do? Animals! Amongst the animals that they were testing on were, of course, human beings. Okay. So wait, wait, wait back to what you didn't want. Yeah. No, oh. they didn't want to test the cosmonauts. I get it. So yeah, test it on... Non-cosmonaut yeah, human beings. seems like that's not going to work very well. So hold on a second. Mm -hmm. You're telling me. You're building a space program. Yep. You've got cosmonauts who are being trained to go into space. They're being put through all the, this, these ordeals. But in order to test the equipment, you take non-cosmonauts, stick them in there just to see if it's going to work. And also you can crank, them, crank the dials up a little bit more. I feel like that's not the logic I would be employing. I feel like you want to dial it back a little bit if you're taking some poor unsuspecting civilian and sticking them on the nose of a rocket. Oh, sweet, sweet Lee. <laughs> this is for the glory of the Soviet Union. Right, okay, okay, okay. So wait, was, were these soldiers? Were yeah, these they prisoners? were soldiers. In fact, they were volunteers. Yeah. They were volunteers. I mean, the that's... scientists were performing experiments on the second group of subjects, people who were never going to go to space. Uh, they weren't even told. It's like, no, you guys are not going to space. You're going to help someone else go to space. Okay. And so they were less valuable. You could really crank up the experiments on this second group of people. Wow. I feel like this is not the uplifting, hopeful episode I was promised after global thermal nuclear war. I mean, it's a bit of a mix, to be honest. <laughs> a little from better. column A, a little Should've from column B. Better. And what's wild is that they got so many volunteers. And then once the space program was released to the, to the Soviet people, they had all sorts of volunteers from people saying that they would be willing to go on a one-way space mission to oblivion. So one subject was told by the scientists, quote, We experimented on dogs, and 50% of them survived. As you know, a person is stronger than a dog. <laughs> this is... I mean, the way you put it, I, I like that the... This, this functionary is focusing on 50% survival. Yeah. Because... So, I mean, that's already great. And also, this is really humans glass are stronger than dogs. Stuff. Yeah. Oh, boy. So one of the surviving subjects, part of the reason we know all of this is because one of them survived, Sergei Nefyadov. Okay. So what does he survive? Like, what happens to these poor volunteers? Well, uh, I mean, there were a lot of experiments with 
air pressure, for example. A lot of experiments with G-forces. Now, you, you're familiar with what G-forces are. I sure are. am. How many Gs are you experiencing right now? One. Exactly. And so you weigh what you weigh, and that's what it feels like. Which if, will not be broadcast on the podcast. Tell you that much. <laughs> now, if you were experiencing two Gs, what does that mean to you? I guess I would weigh twice as much. Yeah. And that would be really uncomfortable. It would be pretty one uncomfortable. G is, one G is bad enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You, you want like a half a G. Yeah, like it used to be. Right. <laughs> so you get you get two Gs, you're twice as heavy. That's unpleasant. You get three Gs, you're really starting to get some reactions from your body, your right. circulation, your musculature, your, your skeletal system. All of these things are under so much stress. They put these guys through 10 Gs. Not well, the cosmonauts. They never dialed the cosmonauts up to 10 Gs, but the second group, 10 Gs. And somebody survived that. Yeah. Now, I'm... They took pride in surviving it because they thought, you know, we're doing this for our country and we're doing this so it doesn't happen to the cosmonauts. I don't want to get gruesome here, but the people who didn't survive, do they, is it like they broke their necks? Is it that the, the pressure was so much on their body that their body just like... Well, your, your circulatory system cannot operate at that level of G for so very long. Is it that they suffocated? Well, it, it, like How your, your exactly brain, did they die, Nathan? Your brain could be starved of oxygen. You could have, obviously your heart could just give out from the strain. You could stroke out. All sorts of things can happen at that many Gs. That's too many Gs. It's too many. It's too many. But Nefudov survived. Although he told the journalist in the 1990s that over the 1,000 test subjects that he had worked with in the 60s, half had not survived into the 90s. Okay. So even if you survived the initial test, you might yeah. be takes a terrible toll on there's, your body. Exactly. There's some kind of toll that catches up with you. Because these guys would have been in their 50s and 60s when they were dying, which okay. is pretty young. Yep. According to Nefudov, The tragic side is that our profession never existed. It was a closed state secret, so we had no long-term protection from the state, and no one ever investigated the long-term health of the testers. Mm -hmm. That was all going on, but it's not like the cosmonauts were having a great time. Okay. So here's an experiment that the cosmonauts were put under. It was called the isolation chamber. Okay. It is a cramped and sealed tank with an airlock as the only entrance, and it contains just bare bones living accommodations. Like you're in a little tiny, sort of like a little capsule, basically. Okay. You've got a desk, you've got a chair, you're covered in probes and things like that. They're testing your reactions. And the cosmonaut candidates, like Gagarin, would be sealed into the tank and asked to perform mental tasks and physical exercises over a disembodied voice through a small loudspeaker. Okay. Again, it's all very Soviet. No other contact with the outside world was permitted and no creature comforts were allowed. No books, no magazines, no nothing. They want to see how well you do with isolation and boredom. Okay. Do you develop space madness? Right. I swear I've seen a Twilight episode that goes this way. There was. The first Twilight Zone episode ever... Really? ...is... Somebody who's walking through an abandoned town. Right. And he, and he can't understand where everybody is. He doesn't know who he is. He's wearing a flight suit. He doesn't know, understand what's happening. There's like phones ringing, but when he answers them, there's nobody there. Yeah. The, the, there's shadowy figures everywhere. It's a great episode. I mean, I love the Twilight Zone. Yeah. And it turns out that he's in... He's in one of those one of these kind of isolation chambers. Exactly. Such a good show. Now, the, the subjects weren't told going in how long the experiment would last. How long could you do in an isolation chamber? How many hours? That's a tough one. You're, I think, probably better suited because of your experience with meditation and things. I bet you you're better suited than most. Maybe. What worries me 
is my own lack of control in that situation. And I don't know at what point I start to freak out that I want to get out and I can't get out. So I, I don't know. What, well, what about you? I'm curious. I mean, I could do, I don't know, probably three or four hours before I'd start to get pretty antsy. Yeah. Uh, you know what I couldn't do? 10 days in a row. No. Yes. They did 10 days in a row. And they weren't told going in how long they'd be oh in there. Oh my God. That's unbelievable. Now, I'm going to do a sensory deprivation experiment this week, I think. This week? Yeah, but I'll only be, for one hour, I'll have be deprived of all of my senses, and I'll be floating in like a, a zero-G environment. should be fun. Yeah, but you'll be allowed to go out. Yeah, but I... Should you want to? Yeah, should I want to? And I to? really think that makes a big difference. Makes all the difference in the world. all the difference. Now, these cosmonauts, they probably could have said, let me out, let me out, let me out, let me out. But then you're out of the program. You are washed out of the program. Yeah. And that's just not how these guys are built. But 10 days, man. 10 days. Well, it gets worse. The purpose was to test the candidates to see how they would react to loneliness and isolation and stress and sleep deprivation. So they were also kind of torturing these guys. While you were trying to sleep, they would turn on the lights randomly. Mm -hmm. While you were trying to work, they would turn off the lights randomly. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, They would change the air pressure. They would raise it. They would lower it and ask you to do all these things. Uh, Yuri Gagarin, of course, was in this, and he said, I concentrated on the future. I shut my eyes and imagined myself in the Vostok, with the continents and oceans drifting beneath me. Hmm. The guy wanted to go to space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gagarin did very well in these tests. Uh, According to a journalist who was permitted to watch the tests, after a few days, understandably, Gagarin was so bored that he just started singing little songs about the limited things that he could see around him in the capsule. (laughs) And so there was one that sort of went, My electrodes, one electrode with the yellow wire, another with the red one. (laughs) Is this the second time that you've sung on the Uncover Up? I think so, yeah. We have to have more Nathan singing. We'll do a Greatest Hit albums later. German Titov, another one of the cosmonauts, he somehow convinced the doctors to bring a book in with him. Okay. He said, I'm not even going to read it. It's just a good luck charm. Okay. And clearly, speaking of charm, Titov must have had considerable amounts of charm in order to, to convince them to do this. Things are about to go grim. Oh, okay. So a friend of Gagarin and Titov, Valentin Bondarenko, 24 mm-hmm. years old, he had an unusually long stay in the isolation chamber at 15 days. Okay. Now, on day 10, that 15 days was how long he was supposed to be in. I see. On day 10, he's been in for 10 days, a week yeah. and a half. The voice, imagine your relationship that you would develop with that voice. The uh-huh. only voice you hear for 10 days is just this disembodied thing telling you to do weird and random yeah. tasks. So on day 10, the voice told Bondarenko that he was done work for the day and could remove the sensor pads from his skin, which had been monitoring his vital signs during a low-pressure experiment. So using a swab dipped in alcohol to clean the sensor glue off his skin, Bondarenko dropped one onto the hot plate of his cooking stove. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Causing a fire, which in the high oxygen, low pressure environment of the sealed tank, it just spread everywhere immediately. And because they've been running a low pressure experiment, the doctors couldn't open the hatch until the pressure equalized, which took almost an hour. So Bondarenko, 24 suffered third-degree burns all over his entire body. As they were taking him out, he was apologizing. No. Yep, he was saying, I'm sorry, it was my fault, I'm sorry. Uh, The only place the doctors could find to place an IV was through the bottoms of his feet. 
That was all that was left of his skin, was the bottoms of his feet because he had been wearing boots. He died 16 hours later, which I think is 16 hours too long, to be honest. Yeah. And Gagarin was by his bedside in the hospital. Mm. Uh, Bondarenko's death was covered up and hidden from the public until the mid-1980s, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course it was. And three weeks after that, three weeks after Gagarin, seeing one of his close friends completely burned to nothing, dying while Gagarin sat at his bedside, three weeks after that, Gagarin was going to go to space. Wow. But before Gagarin went to space, something kind of weird happened. Something weird happened. I'm going to talk about Ivan Ivanovich. Very but Russian name. It is. Well, in fact, it turns out it's the Russian version of John Doe. So oh. the, the name you give when you don't know the person's name. The nameless corpse. Right. So this one comes from the Smithsonian, their National Air and Space Museum website. And there's an article on there from March 23rd, 2017. Should anybody want to go read the full thing? But I'm going to start. I give you this because I start with a quote. On March 25th, 1961, in the countryside not far from Perm, an ancient city in the heart of Soviet Russia, an ejector seat parachuted from a space capsule. A recovery crew, aided by local villagers, eventually located the craft's snowbound crash site and its passenger. Who was this mysterious space traveler? No human being had yet flown in space. End quote. So this was before Yuri Gagarin. This is before Yuri Gagarin. And, and so far, like as you've described, this did occur. This Exactly this did occur. Right. Having done an episode on the Soviet space program, we know, again, that there were a lot of cover-ups. There were a lot of accidents, uh, some massive accidents, which resulted in the destruction of entire facilities. A year earlier, so a year earlier from 1961, where in May 1960, Senator Henry Jackson claimed that the Korbal Sputnik program, so this is the Russian space program which sends up Sputnik and, and other things into space, was a ruse to cover up Soviet space fatalities. Oh, okay. So he's claiming that they're actually not... So the, the Sputnik program was unmanned spacecraft. And he's claiming that the unmanned part was fake and that, in fact, they were manned the whole time. That is, they had occupants inside, but the Soviets were publicly saying it was unmanned in order to be able to hide all the deaths that were occurring in the space program. Now, because we're dealing in the 1960s, we're in the Cold War, we've got the hardened fronts of the uh, Western powers and the Soviet Union and, and generally the communist bloc, there is very little... Intelligence coming out of the Soviet Union, we don't really, we, the, the... The West. The West, North Americans, whatever, don't really know what's happening there. But we're very, very interested in it. And they seem to be kind of kicking butt in the space race. Yeah. As Nathan said earlier, they send up Yuri Gagarin, and then shortly after, they send up somebody else. Yeah. And it just keeps going, and this is in... Well, they were racking up the Ws at first. Yeah, they were totally winning the space race. So Senator Henry Jackson is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that they don't, they're, this is, they're not telling us what's actually happening over there. This is, I guess, one of the consequences of secrecy. Let's go back to 
the Ivan or, Ivanovich, Ivan Ivanovich, and that capsule. So when this landed, it, it made a huge sound. It was well, well what's that technical term? It is super like uh, sonic boom. Sonic boom. And, you know and, what makes that? Airplanes. Yeah. You know what else makes that is, you know, like stuff falling from space that shouldn't be falling from space, like like uh, ejector seats with people strapped into them. So this thing coming down made this huge sonic boom, and that alerted local villagers, and they organized a rescue effort. And they go and try and figure out what's going on. Well... They were in for a bit of a surprise slash disappointment. They were really angry when they found the ejector seat, person strapped into it, punched him in the face. Oh, man. Why? (laughs) Because they had risked their life. This was not, even though it was heard by a village, we're talking nearby in kind of Soviet Union standards. So it it was winter. It was far away. Far away. And it was difficult to get to. And they risked their life trying to save this guy. And what they discover is a dummy. Oh. Like, like like in a test car. Like, you know, when you when you do those safety tests. Crash test dummy. Crash test dummy. You put something the size and shape of a person into the car. And then you crash it against stuff to see what would happen to a human being. And this is exactly what the Soviets were doing with their with some of their unmanned spacecraft. They were, in fact, unmanned, although, just to be sad, on this one, there was a dog, some reptiles, and 80 mice that were sent up as well. And so they it, didn't survive, I assume. No, they did not. Oh, it's a mouse massacre. It's a massacre. So it was a, it was a flight test dummy, and... That's what they discover. And so they were, of course, livid. You know, I mean, they just, li- they risked their life going... Out in the Russian winter. Out in the Russian winter to try and save, to see if they could save somebody. But it did begin, or, or it added fuel to this whole thing, because this also escapes from the Soviet Union. They that find story does. The story does, but not all of it, of course. Although the Soviet Union is behind this Iron Curtain, although it's so secret... There are still these things that are leaking out. And of course, you have actual evidence of disasters that are really happening. You put that all together in a pot, you know, put a lid of secrecy on top and let it simmer for a couple of months or years and out come these last cosmonaut conspiracies. And it's not that unthinkable. If someone had told me, hey, the Soviet Union was actually secretly sending people up to die in these that's not the most strange thing I've heard out of the Soviet Union. It's, well, it's, it's not impossible. So that's the conspiracy yep. of someone going to space. But let's go back to the let's go back to the guy who really does it. Let's go back to Gagarin. All right, things are going to get they've been pretty Soviet already. <laughs> they sure have been. They're going to get more Soviet. Yet. All right. So the Vostok capsule was tiny. Okay. So the earlier isolation torture that you were talking about did have some relationship with what he was going to experience when he got into a rocket. Yeah, you couldn't put somebody in that tiny little capsule who who had fears of isolation or of abandonment or claustrophobia. Now, when I say something is a very Soviet story, what does that mean to you? What qualities does a very Soviet story have? Bureaucracies that don't achieve the ends for which they were set out to, to achieve. Brilliant. 
Yeah. So that's this story. Okay. I got it in one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I figured you would. The Soviet handlers, the guys on the ground, were concerned about two things once Gagarin was up in space. One, that he would suffer space madness and take control of the craft. Okay. And two, Gagarin would deliberately land in the West. <laughs> He'd use this as an opportunity to defect. That would have been the most <laughs> elaborate defection in history. And it also would have been the most embarrassing defection yeah, in history. Yeah, I get that. Imagine, yeah. imagine this big symbolic act yeah. where you send a guy into space and he's going to be like, I'm going to use this opportunity to go to the West. Right. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. Now... Just if I can ask, and maybe it's not relevant, but space madness. What is up with this idea? Well, no one had been in space. So that was it. It was just, there was yeah. a th fear that there could be some kind of psychosis related to with the mere fact of going, what, that far or into a void? Being or... that far away from home. Okay. Uh, no one had ever been that far away from home before in that direction. Maybe something about zero G. Okay. Maybe what happens to your brain once it's not, you know, subject to gravity. Okay. Because it was easier knows, to test right? extra G than it was to test no G. Right. Basically, you're in free fall. They were concerned about those two things. So they wanted a capsule that the cosmonaut had no control over. <laughs> so kind of like Leica was sent up and didn't that control the, the dog. Leica the dog was sent up and couldn't control the capsule. The cosmonauts were going to be like just more, more complicated dogs. Right. But there's a problem. Communications from the ground control might break down, so the pilot would have to manually take control of the craft to land it. Okay. So there had to be some kind of way to override the automatic controls. Okay. So how can you have both? How can you have the pilots have access to it, but also prevent the pilots from having access to it? They came up with a very Soviet solution. The plan was there would be an override built into the capsule that okay. the cosmonaut could flip, and then he's in control. He can fly that thing. Okay. But... It would have a keypad lock on it. Right. And the cosmonaut wouldn't be told what the combination was <laughs> until after the ground controllers made sure that he was both mentally and politically sound. Right. I don't know how in the world would you have done that. Especially if your communications have gone down. Yeah. Which is the time that you would need to take control. This doesn't make a lot of sense. But imagine, so they're thinking, okay, you know, Gagarin, we're going to lose communication. He's going to take control of this craft in 10 minutes. We need to find out if he's still a uh, Soviet. Right. Yeah. And there's a checklist about how you feel about collectivization and <laughs> yeah. planned economies and things. Yeah. Yeah. But also, this is just not how disasters work. No. It's not like there's a disaster coming in 10 minutes, so we now have time to prepare. Normally, they happen when you're not expecting them. Yeah. And Korolev, you remember uh, Chief Designer Korolev, right. probably, I mean, this is a guy he had already experienced Soviet bureaucracy yes. in the Gulag. Yes. And so, and again, he was genuinely concerned about his cosmonauts and wanted to explore space. So he points out, wait, if the pilot needs to take over because communications with ground control have broken off, how could the doctors at ground control communicate with a cosmonaut to assess their mental and political state of mind? Exactly. So the, the, the solution was, okay, in that case, we'll hide a small envelope somewhere in the capsule mm -hmm. with the combination written on it. Yep. Perfect. Yes. There was also an ejection system built into the capsule in case something went wrong on the launch pad. Okay. Because you, you didn't want your cosmonaut getting killed. They're a high-profile person. Right. Put a lot of training into them. Right. But the height that you would be ejected from, if you're on the launch pad and the rocket starts to explode rather than go up, you could eject out, but you're not high enough up to survive the ejection. That's right. not enough time for your parachute to deploy. Mm -hmm. 
So you know what they had instead? They figured out where the escape pod would go, and they just put like a big circus net there. No. Yes. That already is cartoonish, but you wouldn't go that far away from the rocket, the exploding rocket. So even if you ejected and, and somehow landed in the, in the, in the circus, the circus net, net, now what? Now you're going to explode. Or are you not also just going to bounce to a place where there is no circus net? And then just die after the battle. Like, I'm imagining everything going perfectly. Entirely possible. And you're still going to break your neck. Yeah. So this is, this is stressful, but Gagarin, he wants to go to space. Okay. Gagarin wants to fly, and you can't fly any higher than space. So the blast-off date arrives, April 2nd, 1961. The candidate that came in second was German Titov. And so he was kept around as a kind of understudy in case something happened to Gagarin in those last few hours. Okay. The night before blastoff, Gagarin and Titov were sent to their bunks in the same little cramped little room. Yeah. Where they noticed that there appeared to be some sort of electrical equipment hidden in their beds with wires leading from the mattresses to a freshly drilled hole in the wall of their room. Oh my goodness. So Gagarin realizes, okay, so the tests aren't over. Okay. The doctors were testing them to see which one of them got a better night's sleep. Okay which would then factor into which one of them got the final go-ahead to be the first cosmonaut. So in order to fool the doctors into thinking he was getting a good night's sleep, Gagarin stayed awake all night, pretending to be sleeping well. Got no sleep at all. You know, this reminds me of so many bureaucracies where you get highly trained people and then don't trust them to do their job and surveil them all the time which then makes them do a worse job yeah. than if you just let them do what you, what you got them for or trained them for. Yeah. Like, it's just, there is some deep irony built into big bureaucracies that seem to always come up with these kinds of outcomes. Yeah. And again, not, not only Soviet. No. No, I wasn't thinking Soviet. They're particularly actually. good at it. Yeah. No, but I was thinking of uh, other bureaucracies. Yeah. I've had personal experience. The, the unnamed school at which you, we both work. <laughs> I feel like... Is very good at doing that. Yeah, exactly. Because if you actually went to sleep, you might toss and turn. Those doctors would, reading your mattress would say, oh, look at that. I don't right. like these. I don't like this mattress telemetry. <laughs> and so instead, he just lay really, really perfectly still and breathed as if he was sleeping. To be fair, I don't know. Would you get a good night's sleep the night before you were getting into a rocket to even if you trust everything to go super well? I feel like this is going to be... You're the first person in history to do this. I mean, I don't think... I know you wouldn't. No. You don't get sleep if we're going on TV or radio the next day. I don't get sleep if I'm going on a road trip. Yeah. But... But you would. But we're you'd not cosmonauts. Like, you'd be out like a light? Yeah. Well, well I, I don't... I mean, I'm no cosmonaut either, but these guys, I think, could. Or force themselves to stay up all night. Because Titov almost certainly did the same thing. Right. Because they both saw the wires. It would have right, been right, like right. cartoonishly ridiculous. Gagarin would later admit to Korolev what he had done after the flight. Okay. And Titov, of course, had done the same thing. So the result was two extremely tired cosmonauts. Bureaucracy. Right. So the next day, it was Gagarin, of course, who was the one taken up into the Vostok capsule. And one of the key technicians on the program was a guy called Oleg Ivanovsky. And Ivanovsky was the guy who has to put Gagarin into the capsule. Okay. 
Like, imagine that. It's one thing to be the guy in the capsule. I can't imagine that. Put, imagine being the guy who puts the guy into the capsule who's about to go to space. A guy who you've worked with and you respect and you care about, and you're, you're putting him in this tiny little capsule to blast him off in a massive rocket. So what do you think he's feeling? Is it fear or envy or pride? Probably all of them. Uh-huh. Probably, like, just a massive stew of emotion. Of emotions. And just as Ivanovsky is closing Gagarin in those emotions get the better of him. Oh. He suffers a crisis of conscience. He thought, it's absurd. This whole keypad thing. This is ridiculous. If something's yeah. going wrong, he's worried about that keypad that you have to type in oh, in order to take control of the capsule. Okay. So he's, this is absurd. If the capsule's out of control, he's supposed to fumble around in the capsule for some kind of envelope with the secret code on it? Right. But that code is a state secret. But Ivanovsky decides, you know what? He opens the door. He says, listen, here's the code. It's 325. Okay. Now, saying that, again, you have these systems, you have these structures, and then you have these humans making decisions. Mm-hmm. That, was, that could have gotten him sent to a prison camp. Yeah. That could have been sabotage. He could be executed for this. Yeah. But he can't do it. It's, he's a human. Yeah. And so he's, he's facing another human about to do something bizarre. And so Ivanovsky says, yeah, the numbers are 325. And Gagarin smiles and says, I know Korolev already told me, like this guy already told me, (laughs) this other guy already told me. That's awesome. (laughs) And then Gagarin blasts off into space and in history. And as he's blasting off, he says, off we go. Okay. Which is this tiny little guy with a great big smile. Everybody loves, super warm. It just was the most optimistic thing imaginable to say. And Mm -hmm. it became... Like a, a slogan that people in the oh, Soviet yeah. Union would use. Okay. Off we go. Off we go. Yeah. And because Gagarin was off we go into space, other Soviets would have been, you know, off we go into like a better world. Off right. we go into a better living situation. Right, right, right. Off we go to a grocery store that has bread. <laughs> off we go away from Stalinism. Okay. See, where it's a real mix. It's a real emotional yeah, roller coaster, yeah. this story. So the flight goes well. Yes, it does. There's actually not much to say about the flight. It lasts about 108 minutes. And went fairly smoothly while he was in space. He was the first person to see Earth from space. It, it moved him dramatically. Hmm. This actually happens to a lot of astronauts. It happened to William Shatner. Yeah. Well, I was actually thinking this sounds a bit like the Jeff Bezos space capsule. Yeah. Where you get in, you go get shot up into space, and then you come back down. Yeah. And for William Shatner, the actor who was sent up into space, he came back down weeping. Yeah. And he, he said, out there is, is just death. Yeah. Down here, it's so fragile. It's life. We have to look after this. Yeah. You guys don't understand. Yeah. When you're on the earth, it seems so big and strong. You get off the earth and you think, oh, damn, this thing yeah. is just a tiny little oasis of life in an ocean of death. Yeah. And that's what, that was the experience Gagarin had. And he was the first person ever to have it. Mm. And once he had made it into orbit, once he didn't blow up on the launch pad and been ejected into a circus tent... Then the Soviet government tells the world about his flight, which was also the first time Gagarin's mother hears about it. Oh, wow. She's like, oh, my son's in space. Odd feeling. However, they got a guy in space. That's great. Yep. What do you still need to do? You got to get him back down. Re-entry. And the scientists, remember when they sent, they kind of sent Leica into space. Yep. They had no idea how to bring her back. Mm -hmm. And the plan was to have her die in space. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they still hadn't really figured out how to bring anybody back. Okay. But they didn't want Gagarin to die in space. That's embarrassing. Right. 
So the plan was the capsule would fire its braking thrusters and start its descent through the atmosphere. And then at about 23,000 feet above the ground. So a little lower than like your typical jetliner flies. Right. Gagarin would eject out of the capsule and then parachute to the ground in his own parachute. Really? So Is that actually what happened? That is sort of what happened. Because and then the capsule would, have, would de- deploy its own parachute and then it would land much harder. Naively, I would have thought you were going too fast. Everything I imagine upon re-entry from space is your capsule is essentially on fire. Yeah. And now you're going to open that yep. and you're going to move at that speed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's what happened. Really? Yep. And he survives. He did. It wasn't easy. And he almost didn't survive, as you would expect. And also, the whole thing had to be covered up. Oh. Because the Soviet government wanted a record from this French agency that that was sort of evaluating different flight records. It was this international agency that decided you flew the highest, you flew the longest. You need an international agency to kind of put your stamp on that. It's like the Guinness Book of World Records for right. planes. So to get the record for highest flight, you have to come back in the same plane you left in. Right. Okay. Makes sense. And so while they couldn't figure out how to land him in the capsule, they had to pretend that he had. Okay. So the Vostok hits the atmosphere, and because it's a ball, and because it's space, and because of the speeds involved, it starts spinning wildly. Okay. There was a malfunction of the propellant lines. Uh, They remained open, which shot out pressurized gas after the engines had had, had shut off. And so Gagarin is, at this point, getting eight Gs. Whoa. Which is a lot of Gs. Yeah. Too many Gs. Yeah. Eight times his weight. Now, he had always been good at this, staying conscious. You and I would have passed out immediately. Listen, they like, would have been like, I would not, they wouldn't even talk to me to, yeah. get, to get into this program. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have made it this far, but I definitely wouldn't have made it through that. He, he's able to stay conscious and he's able to do that long enough to eject from the capsule and land safely in the Russian countryside. He didn't defect where he was greeted by a very confused farmer and her daughter. <laughs> a quote from Gagarin. When they saw me in my spacesuit and the parachute dragging alongside as I walked, they started to back away in fear. I told them, don't be afraid. I'm a Soviet like you who has descended from space, and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. That's awesome. Imagine if it had been the same village where Ivan Ivanovich had landed. And they just started punching him in the face. Yeah, they're like, no, 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 we've seen this before. (laughs) This one's walking. (laughs) And Gagarin becomes like a global superstar. Yeah, yeah, Huge. Everywhere. Everyone's talking about him. Movie stars are saying they want to have sexual intercourse with him. Like, it is... He is everywhere. He's talking to kings and queens. And the whole time, he's this little guy with this great big warm smile, which was part of the reason that he was picked over Titov. Okay. Titov was probably a better cosmonaut, but Gagarin had a much warmer smile. Okay. Titov was a bit aloof. Yeah. And so he tours the UK even during Mm -hmm. the Cold War, during Mm -hmm. sort of the height of the Cold War. He's touring the UK and he was hailed as a hero. Massive crowds are pouring out in the streets to see him in person. He was beloved. Uh, a foundry workers' union invited him to Manchester, and he accepted. Okay. He said, yeah, sure, I'll go Manchester, factory unions. It was a public relations bonanza for the Soviets. Sure. And when he arrives in Manchester, it's Manchester, so it's raining. And Gagarin says, nope, I'm going to drive in an open-topped convertible and get rained on. The people would come to see him. Yeah. He's just, he's very likable. He's good at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you want a metaphor, in the Vostok... His ascent into space had been extraordinarily rapid, and so had his global fame. Okay. He had skyrocketed in two ways. Right. Literally and figuratively. 
So in some sense, it is an uplifting story. Yeah. Well, there's part two. It's all about to go so bad now. I know, I know. Because he also, in the Vostok, hurtled back to Earth again. Yes. And this is the part of the story where things sort of hurtle back to Earth. But we'll leave that to part two. Okay. Uh, Now, part two, there was a bit of conspiracy stuff in here. There was. And there was a lot of Soviet stuff. Yeah. Which I think is just conspiracy enough. Just being in the Soviet Union is just living a conspiracy. Now, help me understand how this, what kind of context this provides for us in terms of understanding stories that are yet to come, stories that we've already told, and conspiracies as such. All of this has been to get us to a place where we could discuss a conspiracy that I've kind of been obsessed over for about three or four years. And that is the death of Yuri Gagarin. Okay. So this is a prelude to the big research project you've never told anybody about except me. Yes. And you're going to reveal that in the next episode. Yeah. In the next episode, there's going to be cover-ups. There's going to be KGB maneuvering. There's going to be politics. There is going to be... Charred bodies. Charred bodies. There's going to be human beings behaving extraordinarily decently. Yeah. That is the very touching part of that story. In a very indecent situation. Okay, I look forward to it. That's the next one, though. All right, see you then. Mm